0: Please stand and turn with me now to Romans chapter 8. This will be our New Testament reading, which contains an important quotation from Psalm 44, our sermon text. Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. Familiar words, please listen to them afresh as the Lord speaks to us now in the scriptures. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Um, But I suppose we should read the sermon text too. Sorry, I got caught up in the glory of that Romans passage. Why don't you stand again as we honor God's word? our attention. Standing, you ever wonder why we do that? Standing shows our acknowledgement that this is not just any other book, this is the word of God. And I think it also helps us to pay attention, which is an added benefit. Psalm 44, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. By your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. And covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God. Or spread out our hands to a foreign God. Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake. We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Amen. Now you may be seated. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of trying to do a craft where you you, you found it on the internet, a uh, picture of some charming little thing you want to try to make, and, and you've got your paper, you've got your paints, you've got all your fancy supplies, and you start out all smiling and excited, I'm going to make this beautiful thing, it's going to be amazing, and uh, the more you work on it, uh, you kind of furrow your brow a little bit, and you. Keep looking at the picture. You keep looking at your work, and and you start to realize this, this doesn't look like the picture at all. There's a big difference between how I thought this was supposed to turn out and how it's actually turning out. There's a, a mismatch between what I imagined and what I'm experiencing, between expectation and the reality. Of course, when that happens, when you're making a craft, you can just say, okay, well, we'll just scrap this idea, I'll buy it on Etsy instead somebody else. But, um, of course, it's a lot more serious when it's something um, more than a craft where expectation and reality are not matching. What about in the big picture when reality is not matching what you expected for the Christian life? And maybe a a tremor runs through your faith. And you start to ask questions like if God is who he says he is. And if if he's done in the past all the things that the Bible says that he's done for other people. If if he's completely good and he's completely powerful. Then why does my life look like this? This is a place where I think Psalm 44 can help us. We're going to look at this psalm in three parts tonight. First, God's power in the past, verses 1 through 8. Second, it's the problem of our present, verses 9 to 16. And third is a plea for the future, verses 17 to 26. So power, problem, plea. God's power in the past, the problem of our present, and a plea for the future. And First, God's power in the past. Okay, so verses 1 through 8 begin with this uh, snapshot from Israel. There's really maybe survey, we could say, of Israel's uh, earlier history. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. And you should think here about the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, think about the conquest of Canaan, Jordan River, Battle of Jericho, everything that we just wrapped up studying in the book of uh, Joshua a few weeks ago, when you remember how not, not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. There was miracle after miracle, supernatural victory after supernatural victory. Um, and by the way, good for the fathers who are mentioned in verse 1 there, amen? Because the, they, these fathers have faithfully passed on, generation after generation, they've passed on that history to their children like they're supposed to do. Like they've been instructed to do, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us these things, and that's how the covenant community is supposed to work, right? One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. It's Psalm 145, and uh, you remember from Joshua, or from uh, from Exodus, and then later from Joshua, when your children ask you whether it's why do we celebrate the Passover or why is there this mound of stones in the Jordan River, you tell them, you tell them what the Lord did for you in the past, so that. They will trust him with their future. And not only has this psalm writer um, inherited the history of those past events, it's not just the facts of what has happened, he's also inherited from those forefathers the faithful, godly interpretation of of those past events too. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But them you planted. You can see how God-centered this interpretation of Israel's history is. The history of God's people is not primarily about what they have done and accomplished, but what the Lord has done and accomplished uh, in their lives. And through them, uh, to some degree, not not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Throughout this psalm, you should notice how many times that second-person pronoun, you, 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 is just talking about what the Lord has done in the past, and then it's going to turn around in the middle section and be about what the Lord is doing now. Still, it's you, 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 but there's a contrast. and uh, We'll get there in a little while. For right now, though, look at all these things the Lord has done for Israel, not the things that Israel has done for God. And so in light of that history of the past, in verses 4 through 8, there's this very positive, very confident, trusting, confession of faith and reliance on the Lord uh, that he is going to continue to act in the same way um, in Israel's present and future. It's not just that God was was their king, the king of our fathers back then. Verse 4, you are my king, O God. Verse 5, through you we push down our foes. So the history of God's power is not just um, this artifact of the past that we look back to for inspiration. It is describing for us what God is like, the eternal God who is the same God that we serve now. And so that, that God's power that we see in the past is also the living present for the people of God. Right now, in our time and place, he's saying we, like they, are not going to trust in our bows and swords either. It's the Lord, verse 7, who saved us from our foes. And so that's the pattern that we have every reason to expect will continue into the future. And God, we have boasted continually all through our history in the past. And and so as we look to the future, we trust that we will give thanks to your name forever. Verse 8, once again, you can see that look back and that look forward. Then you come to verse 9. It begins a sharply contrasting, say, stanza, maybe, of the psalm. That, that confidence, that trust, that inspiring picture of Israel's past runs up very hard, all of a sudden, against Israel's experience right now. There is a, a mismatch between Everything he's just said about Israel's past, the way he thinks that things are supposed to go on an ongoing basis for Israel, and the way things are actually going—it's almost as though he's saying that was then, but but Lord, look, this is this is now. This is quite different. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. Israel has faced defeat in battle, and so. It it seems like the Lord hasn't been with their armies at all. He's not with them to give them victory. Instead of putting their enemies to flight, they're doing the opposite. They're they're running away from them. Uh, The the opposite, you could think think of it as the, the opposite of the conquest of Canaan. Now they're the ones getting despoiled. Now they're the ones getting scattered out of the Promised Land, driven away among the nations. We might be able to really summarize this middle section by saying that it feels like we are experiencing the curses of the covenant instead of the blessings. Um, You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them, verse 12 says. It's one thing to sell somebody into slavery. That would show already what a low value you put on your relationship with them. But, But even worse, to sell them cheaply, to sell them for next to nothing. Reminds me of the great climax of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28, when at the end of all the other disaster after disaster after disaster that God portrays as happening to Israel, if they break the covenant, he says at the very end, And you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. There will be no buyer. No one will even want to, to take you for free. And then verse 14 should remind us of the language of the prophets when they're speaking against uh, God's rebellious people. Um, this is the sort of thing, verse 14, that happens when Israel has rejected God, rejected his word. Jeremiah 24.9 says, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. So Jeremiah is saying that the word Israel is, Will, to the nations, it will, will be like a bad word, a curse word for, for other countries. Um, Israel will be so famous, so proverbial for the disaster that's happened to them. It's going to become like a, a kind of a, a trope for describing or, or maybe insulting somebody that you don't like. to Refer to them, comparing them to Israel. But here in verses 13 and 14, the psalmist says, Lord, that, that's us. That's what's happening to us right now. And it, it feels really rotten. For him, for Israel. All day long, my disgrace is before me, he says. Shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And you might think of, if that sounds familiar, you think of the phrase from Psalm 8. Oh, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've uh, established, you've poured forth speech to still the enemy and the avenger. picture of God using even children to be able to put to silence the enemy and the Avengers. The same phrase again, except now the enemy and the Avenger have the upper hand. Now they are taunting Israel. And so if we stop here, it would be reasonable to conclude uh, this psalm must come from a time of great wickedness in Israel. They are obviously uh, getting punished very severely. They must have done something really bad to deserve this level of judgment from God. Seems reasonable. We're going to find out that's not right. Um, when we think about that picture on the on the front of the box, or the picture from the internet of the craft, well, we. Think, what is our picture of what life ought to look like? So often it's it looks like this. Well, righteous people have happy lives and wicked people have miserable lives. It's kind of the mentality of Job's friends. Job, you're miserable. That means you must be wicked. You must have done something really bad. It's a very neat and tidy way to imagine the world. Um, but of course, it's not the way the world actually works. It's not the way that God providentially oversees the universe. And verse 17 is very important for correcting that misconception we might get. As the psalmist clarifies, all of this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. That's surprising. He's saying this is not a time of great wickedness and covenant-breaking for Israel. It's the opposite. It's a time of marked covenant faithfulness. Israel's actually been doing pretty well in terms of obedience and worship. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not departed from your way. And, and that's not because this man is one of these uh, Pharisee types who, who thinks that he's righteous because he's kept a, a set of outward rules. He knows, and he expresses here, that obedience is a matter of the heart. In fact, he says, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Don't misunderstand here. He's not um, claiming to be perfect. He's not claiming to be morally flawless. But he is claiming that Israel is living faithfully in the covenant. That they are loyal to God from the heart. Of course, in the covenant is built in provision for sacrifice to atone for the sins that God's people will inevitably commit. The question is, are they walking by faith in the promises of the covenant? Are they loyal to God or are their hearts going astray to another allegiance? Right now, Israel, it seems, is being faithful. But that, that simply makes the tragedy of Israel's current circumstances all the harder to bear for this man. All that's true, and yet, he says... You have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. And you can feel that that tremor running through his faith. Like it runs through ours when we suffer. We don't understand why. We have to ask, how do we make sense of this? How can it be that God's people can be covenantally faithful, but experiencing what feels like covenant curse? at the same time. Does it mean that it can't mean that God is being unfaithful. And you should note here that the psalmist does not hint in that direction. He knows better than that God would be unfaithful. His assumption in fact is that God is faithful, that God is sovereign, that he is good, that he is all-powerful, and that's why the first eight verses of the psalm are here. He establishes that confession of faith at the very beginning. I know that God is sovereign, I know that God is faithful, I know that God is good. And I also know that I've been faithful and I know that I'm really suffering what feels like covenant curse. And, and as he experiences that mismatch between what he believes about God, how he, how he thinks that that means life ought to be going, and then how life is actually going, he does not rebel. He does not shake his fist at God in anger. Well, what does he do? He sings a song. He turns to God. He presents that mismatch to him. He presents how perplexed he is. This problem of life not making sense, he presents it to the Lord in prayer. And in the process, he also hints at an answer which I'm convinced is really the key to interpreting this whole psalm, to understanding what's really going on in Israel's life at this point, which I also think is very important for thinking about the Christian life right now in our present time. Um, You know how many different diseases can present with uh, very similar symptoms. So so you you have a sore throat. Okay, okay. That could be caused by a lot of different things. Um, you know, you know no, no more than that to get a diagnosis. If you get the diagnosis wrong, well, then you're likely to get the cure wrong as well. If we assume in verses 9 to 16 that Israel's is getting punished for their sin and rebellion, well, we've looked at the symptoms, but we've gotten the wrong diagnosis. Symptoms of covenant curse, but it's, it's not covenant curse that's going on. Instead, the psalmist gives us the correct diagnosis in verse 22, when he says, Yet for your sake, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Israel's not suffering as a punishment from God for their unfaithfulness. They're actually suffering because of their faithfulness to the Lord. The psalmist recognizes that Israel is part of a cosmic spiritual conflict between God and his enemies. And that if those enemies hate and oppose the Lord, then they are also going to hate and oppose his people. And so he rightly diagnoses that their relationship to God is the reason that these enemies are lashing out so violently against them. Their suffering as a nation actually is evidence of their nearness to God, not the opposite. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, They are subjected to sufferings not on account of crimes committed by themselves, Simply because the ungodly, from hatred to the name of God, are opposed to them. Now, what does that mean they're going to do about it? Well, they're, they're still going to cry to God for, for relief, for deliverance, for protection. It's not as though they're going to say, oh, well, if you put it that way, if we're suffering for his sake, oh, okay, then I guess it's not so bad. Let's just suffer some more. No, that's not what they want. It's not like they're saying, oh, we we love this as long as we're suffering for God. No, we don't love this. It hurts. It's horrible experiencing this onslaught of the hatred of the world and of Satan against the kingdom of God. And, And so the psalmist, again, rightly cries out to God for relief, for rescue, for help in the midst of suffering, even for the Lord's sake. And, and that's how the psalm ends. So he says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever! Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Some of those questions may be a little disconcerting to you. Of course, he knows that the Lord is not sleeping. We have to understand this is poetry. These are these are rhetorical questions. And, and we're used to this sort of thing, even in much more recent poetry. Think about, we just had the 4th of July, think about the National Anthem. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that the National Anthem is one long question from beginning to end. It's all questions. And at the end, you think of Francis Scott Key sitting out there in Baltimore Harbor looking at Fort McHenry and wondering, does the Star-Spangled Banner yet wave? Is it still there after all of the shelling overnight by the British? Is it still there? Does it still wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? I want to be careful about you drawing equivalency. uh, This is an illustration, okay? I'm not saying that that's on, and, and by any means on the level with the Psalms. What I am saying is that this is how poetry works. We ask these questions, rhetorical questions, but they have an expected answer. The psalmist knows that the Lord is not sleeping, but he's expressing to God this is what it feels like. And he's asking, what are you going to do, Lord? How are you going to deliver us? Don't reject us forever. He's appealing to what he knows of God's character from the first eight verses. And he concludes, rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He knows that God is a God of steadfast love and he is calling on God to act now in his living present in light of his eternal character that he's demonstrated in the past and he knows he's going to continue to demonstrate in the future. Now, earlier we... um, read a very famous passage from the New Testament, right? The end of Romans chapter 8. One of the most famous. About how we're more than conquerors. How nothing can separate us from God's love. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I've read that passage, I've, I've gotten to verse 36, and I've kind of wanted to skim past it to get back to the good part. <laughs> quote, unquote, I'm, I'm being self-deprecating there. We don't want to treat one passage, part, a part of Scripture as not good. But you know what I mean. You, we get confused why Paul would quote about being counted as sheep for the slaughter, right in the middle of um, all of the iconic, triumphant phrases of that passage. seems like kind of a downer, when all of a sudden in the middle, he quotes this psalm. he says, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're, count, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It can, can almost feel like he's even interrupting his own flow of thought. But the opposite is true. And I want to explain that to you now. There's a reason that Paul quotes Psalm 44:22 in Romans 8:36, And it gets to the heart of everything we've just been talking about. How can it be that God's faithful people who have been forgiven, who have been accepted, no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus, set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life. That's earlier in Romans 8. How is it That we can still experience the kinds of things Paul lists in Romans 8.35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Does this mean, we feel this when we experience, does that mean that God doesn't love me anymore? That maybe our salvation in Christ has its limits and maybe we've just started to get just outside the reach of his grace. Because if God really loved us, if we really belonged to him, why would all these bad things be happening to us? It's the sort of thing that the psalmist maybe was feeling. Psalm 44. And Paul reminds us that this psalm was wrestling with those same questions all of those years ago. Just as it is written, he says. And the answer for us is the same as the answer for the psalmist, same as the answer that Paul gives, that, well, it's for your sake. It's for the Lord's sake that we are being killed all day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's for the Lord's sake, not not because he doesn't love us. It's because he does love us. It's because we belong to him inseparably, forever. That's why the world and Satan hate us and oppose us so much. So, why would we expect anything other than this, in fact, when we are disciples of a crucified Savior? If that's the way that they treated Him, well, then it's only to be expected that they would treat us in exactly the same way. But here's what that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we're just to resign ourselves to these things and keep a stiff upper lip. That's Stoicism, that's not Christianity. We're not just supposed to pretend like it doesn't hurt. When it does hurt, it really hurts to take up your cross and follow Jesus day by day. It really hurts to experience the rejection and the opposition of other people for his sake. What this psalm does is it shows us when we are experiencing that rejection and opposition, it shows us how to respond in a godly way from our hearts in faith. That does justice, on the one hand, to the tragedy and the hardness of our suffering, but that also at the same time does justice to the sovereignty of God and to the trust that we ought to have that he is going to do what is truly best for us. So we're not to think, oh no, God doesn't love me anymore. And we're also not to think, by the way, this can be a temptation too, we're not necessarily to think, oh, I must have really messed up. He must be punishing me because I'm experiencing." No, we are to cry out to him in the midst of, of those hard things, and we're to tell him, Lord, it is painful for me to be sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You've called me to become like him in his death, but I am feeling crushed by the weight of that calling. Help me. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up, come to our help, and redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's how the Lord wants for his children to pray in the midst of of carrying our crosses and following Jesus. Let me quote Calvin one more time. Although it is the greatest alleviation of our sorrow that the cause for which we suffer is common to us with Christ himself, yet it is neither in vain nor out of place that the faithful here plead with God that they suffer wrongfully for his sake, in order that he may the more vigorously set himself for their defense. While that defense, that deliverance from God may not seem to happen on our timeline, or take the form that we would like, and, and in this life our lives may never look like the picture on the front of the box that we thought would be the victorious Christian life, Nonetheless, we can be confident that Christ hears this cry of his people. And we can be confident that in all of these things, in the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, peril, danger, sword, in all those things, in them, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not in spite of them, not once we get through them, but in those things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can be confident that the Lord who took the punishment for our sins on the cross and who died for us so that we could have life will not just kind of give us a ticket to heaven and then leave us on our own to fend for ourselves in a Christian life. No, he's going to be with us there in our suffering for his sake. And in the end, he will promise, and He will follow through on delivering us from it. He will bring that suffering to an end. He will defeat our foes once and for all. He will complete the victory that He's already begun. And in the meantime, as long as we're still walking this Psalm 44 road of suffering that leads to glory, we can be sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, strengthen our faith, we pray. Help us when our faith grows weak and is shaken by the realities of life. Help us to see, with the eyes of faith, the deepest realities, that you are with us. You are not asleep. You are not rejecting us. You haven't stopped loving us. But that we're sharing Christ's sufferings. We're also sharing, and we'll continue to share his glory, now and more fully in eternity. Give us patience, we pray, Lord. Give us faith. Give us courage. We need you, Lord, for this daily work of taking up our crosses and following Christ. Strengthen us for that work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.